You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. You're listening to the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, and this week we have Anne Bujold. And uh, we got an artist statement from from Anne, which really gives a lot of her uh, background, and um, it'll introduce you to um, uh, her blacksmithing uh, technique and in how she does her art. She's uh, she combines metal smithing and blacksmithing techniques with alternative materials such as felt, ribbon, plastics, and in her sculpture, animals are agents examining the spaces between definitions, that fertile ground where new forms emerge. Bajold is currently the artist in residence for the metals department at the Appalachian Center for Craft in Smithville, Tennessee. She received her MFA from the Craft and Material Studies Department at Virginia Commonwealth University and a BFA from the Oregon College of Art and Craft. Previously based in Portland, Oregon, she operated Riveted Rabbit Studio, a custom metal fabrication business. Bujold has taught at Virginia Commonwealth University, the Oregon College of Arts and Crafts, the Multnomah Arts Center, the Donkey Mill Arts Center, the Appalachian Center for Craft, and the Aramont School of Arts and Crafts. Uh, we really uh, want to welcome uh, Anne Bujold to Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. And a lot of folks don't, uh, they, they might have an idea in their head about what blacksmithing is. Um, I don't know, like some fire and create things out of that. I, I think it's going to be helpful for us to have a, uh, <laughs> a good working uh, definition about just kind of like a quick history in, in your work as a blacksmith. All right. Well, I think it, it kind of gets broken down, you know, the distinction between maybe fine art and craft, and I come from more of a craft tradition, but I would, I would call it contemporary craft, where we're combining craft process with contemporary thinking about how to make the work, so sort of a hybrid there. Um, my background is in small metals, uh, so that's like jewelry and hollowware and small sculpture, um, so we would call that metal smithing, and that's what I was studying at Oregon College of Art and Craft. Um, so we work primarily in non-ferrous metals. So those are metals other than steel. So copper, brass, bronze, sterling, silver. Um, I got introduced to blacksmithing between my second and third year. I had the opportunity, I got some scholarships, two scholarships to go to a school in Maine called Haystack School of Craft and one to go to a place in North Carolina called Penland School of Craft. And that's where I was introduced to contemporary blacksmithing. So a lot of people understand, you know, well, first their response is going to be blacksmith, you make horseshoes, right? Um, those are farriers, so they're a little bit different. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people are familiar now with blacksmithing through Forged in Fire, the reality show. Um, oh, sure, yeah. So, yeah, so a lot of people associate blacksmithing with knife making, weapon making, things like that. But I'm part of a, a smaller community of people who are looking at utilizing these processes and techniques for contemporary applications. So looking at, I mean, I would say blacksmithing fundamentally as a process is 
moving mass, moving the mass of steel through the application of heat and pressure, so fire and hammers or hydraulic presses or other kinds of methods. And so um, there's a lot, there's a kind of rich contemporary field that exists a little bit separately, I think, from some other contemporary craft movement and also separately from fine art. We can get into why that is a little bit because I have a lot of thoughts on the topic. But so using steel sculpturally in a different way that it's different than just cutting and welding, which we'd call fabrication, right? So is this now you kind of I don't know if it's the best way to put it, but came to it um, a, a you know, a little bit later in kind of in, in, in your art, you know, process and, and development. Um, I'm going to stop there and go back to, to the beginning and, and ask you a question we ask of guests. Um, what were you like as a, as a young human? Um, were you an artist when you were younger? Did you have an interest in anything that you're working on right now going back all the way then? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all artists when we're younger. Um, and I definitely was like a very creative kid, a very bookish kid. Um, my mom is a science fiction and fantasy writer, so which is a little bit unusual for a kid growing up in a small town in Ohio in the 80s. But uh, so reading was super important in my family and books have always been like a really important part of my life. Um, so sort of very internally imaginative. And I think it was kind of in my adolescence high school years that I kind of probably started to believe that I wasn't good enough at making art to continue to pursue it, even though I enjoyed it. I think that happens to a lot of people. Um, and I got more academically tracked in high school and moved in that direction. So it took me quite a while to come to the idea that I could pursue art as an adult and that I could pursue it as a career path. Um, I initially went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota, and then moved to Portland in 1999. I was at Portland State University. I had studied a lot of women's studies, sociology, political science, which kind of all comes into my work today. The way that I think about the world, I think, is very much formed by that education. But I didn't start at OCAC until I was 24. So it kind of took me a while to get to art. Um, yeah. Well, what about, uh, you mentioned your mom as, as, as a writer, and I just want to focus in on that for a moment. Did that, uh, did, did that feel, uh, intimidating or did that feel freeing? Um, Cause you, you mentioned a kind of an imaginative atmosphere, which I, I, uh, from the outside, I would assume might be there. Uh, what, what was your relationship with the fact that your mom you know, was a writer, was an artist uh, in, in that regard. How did that impact you? I mean, I think that that's changed a lot, like my perception of that. I mean, one thing about writing is that it's something that happens when nobody's around. So, you know, it's not something I observed or really understood as a kid or, you know, because um, it would only happen when we went outside. So. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Yeah, right. And then um, I think, you know... I definitely had the sense that it set us apart or set me apart from my peers um, as a kid um, living in a, you know, a small post-industrial mid-80s town where like most folks are working at Whirlpool or, um, 
you know, there are a couple other factories that still existed at that point. But um, so being a writer was definitely outside the norm. Being interested in intellectual pursuits wasn't necessarily like a way to be popular. I think it's much, much cooler to be a, like a, a geek nowadays <laughs> than it was. You know, when we were like going our family vacations. We're going to science fiction conventions across the southeast you know, in the like mid, late 80s, early 90s. Um, so I understood that that was different. Um, and I, so I think that that, you know, yeah, it was hard to navigate in some ways. I mean, at this point, as an adult, I have an enormous amount of respect for my mom for her perseverance in that path of like, you know, there's not a lot of other housewives from Marion, Ohio, who ended up making careers as science fiction writers um you know what she did was really unique and i have an, a, yeah a, a lot of respect for the fact that she pursued that and was able to make that happen it doesn't yeah i i love the uh Bujold family vacation the science fiction <laughs> i <laughs> it's an intimate experience for you but from the outside i'm saying wow <laughs> yeah so that would have been up my alley too. Yeah, seeing Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was like 12 years old, I think, uh, was different than what my friends were experiencing on their family vacations. <laughs> I, 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 I guarantee that, and I'm sure you're the better for it. Uh, <laughs> um, what type of uh, forms of art uh, uh, attract you, both in the sense of you creating forms of art or dabbling or what have you? And what are you attracted to as a, yeah, whether you be a consumer or a viewer of, of, of art? So what, what, what styles of art uh, pull you in? Well, I mean, I look at a lot of sculpture. Um, I mean, you know, I'd say music is hugely important and fiction is hugely important. And, but those are, you know, a little bit less direct. I mean, I, you know, appreciate painting sculpture there's definitely you know specific artists that have been more influential uh lee bonacou is someone i've looked at a lot I've, i really like her work louise bourgeois um you know she's an amazing sculptor and did most of the best work like in the last 30 years of her life after she was 60 and she makes incredible work and i love the way that she talks about it and um the fact that she was drawing from a very personal experience which in a lot of ways is you know, looked down on, I think. Uh, I think there's a lot of ideas about personal narrative that are seen as not serious, especially when that comes from a female perspective. Um, you know, I look at a lot of contemporary metalwork, but also just contemporary sculpture. I'm always up for finding new things. Um, you know, I like everything, you know, everything from, you know, gallery museum art to street art. And one of the moments that was really pivotal for me in the decision to pursue art was as cliche as this might be going to Burning Man in 2002. Um, you know, I, I'd never experienced anything like that, which was a community of people coming together in a creative experience that wasn't driven by commercial interests. It was just people coming together to make art. And there were, to me, it deconstructed the hierarchy between um, artist and nor you know, normal person or like, some people are artists and some people aren't. I think that division is really false. And that experience really helped me understand that. And, and I think, uh, just as far as you mentioned Burning Man, which I haven't 
been to, but just the dynamic of that you talked about of uh, creation, maybe kind of separate from uh, from the market. Uh, was that? It sounds to me that that was kind of uh, that must have been quite an event uh, or potentially transformative event for you that you just saw so much creation and it wasn't tied necessarily to is this going to sell or who's the buyer type of thing? Yeah. I mean, at that point, I think it was about 30,000 people. And, you know, I, I remember a very specific moment of being there really early on and in the week and just looking around. I mean, I grew up in a town of 30,000 people. And so to be like, wow, 30,000 people came out here to build a city in the service of art and then they're going to burn it to the ground. And like, that's very powerful. That's not something that we do. We try to preserve art. We, you know, there's, right? Museum culture is all about the preservation of artifact and this idea that, that you just create an experience and, and then, you know, it can never be exactly recreated, right? Every year it's going to be different because every year you're starting over. Um, that, that was really profound for me. Well, so, and connected to that, I mean, uh, in, in de- describing, you know, kind of like creating something and then it, it's eliminated and, uh, you know, burned. Did you, either at that time or have you ever asked yourself is like, why do you, why do you create anything? Why do you create? Why do I create personally? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think that it's it's become a way for me to try to understand the world, Um, especially going through like the graduate school process and developing sort of more of a research based perspective. Like it's a way for me to explore ideas through material and the creation of objects that helps me understand the relationships between things in new ways. And that comes from both like the idea and the fact that I come from a craft-based education. So thinking a lot about material meaning, material history, um, process history, which connects to the blacksmithing um, quite a bit. And one of the things that's happened for me in the last few years is coming around to the understanding. Like there was, I felt like there was something in blacksmithing that was always sort of missing for me or something that I wasn't connecting to that I didn't understand. And I, my theory, my working theory is that, you know, as a medium and material, it has, I mean, it's been the purview of men for almost its entire history. Not that there haven't been maybe some women involved along the way. And I do wonder if there are more women historically than we're aware of, but you know, you don't have women coming into contemporary blacksmithing until a little bit later and not that many of them now. There are quite a bit, quite a few more. Um, and so I wonder about how having a predominantly masculine perspective and aesthetic has shaped the way that that material is used. And um, yeah. Well, and I want to, I want to, I want to get into that because, you know, personally, as far as with with um, kind of just kind of a recent perspective I've had of, of looking at uh, past history. And I mean, maybe it's the stories of artists, particularly women uh, artists or, or persons of color, where there's these stories that I think sometimes we randomly happen upon that have occurred 
these stories, these histories, these contributions that were made that um, I always feel a little bit cheated that I find out about them so late. You know, um, I, I, I study, uh, you know, science and just learning about the contributions of women uh, in science and that their names weren't on papers, but they were the ones who made the discovery or, you know, a wife of a famous scientist that we know was the one who did the work. You know, it's situations like that. Um, and, and it sounds like you're grappling, you know, in, in working within uh, that question. The uh, One of the projects that I know you've um, uh, moved into helped create and organize is a group called the Society for Inclusive uh, Blacksmiths. And uh, from what I've seen, it's, it's, it's uh, well, I'm not going to describe your group and what you've created. Could you tell us about um, why this group was formed in the mission uh, of your work? Sure. So um, the project started as a small conversation really between uh, a couple of folks, Lisa Gertzen, who's a Seattle-based blacksmith, and Rachel David, who's based in New Orleans. And through a series of events, we sort of ended up in each other's orbits quite a bit a few years ago, even though we're geographically living in very different places. And we, you know, we just wanted to do something where we could bring women, uh, you know, non-binary non identifying folks, um, people of color, people who are outside the larger demographic of blacksmithing together, because we understand that we're having a different experience. And um, so how that manifested was that we ended up through us, we wanted to have like a larger sort of more open event or conference, but we ended up applying for some grants and getting space at a place called the Cascadia Center for Arts and Crafts, which is up in government camp on Mount Hood. And we invited a, about a dozen um, folks out from across the country and we'd gotten a grant to build a sculptural bench. Um, so that project, that was sort of the building portion of the project. And then the other point was to have a series of conversations um, about what people's experiences were and to try to figure out like how we could start to do work to change things or what was that, what would that even look like? And so we were up there for about three and a half days and we built the bench and, you know, did that. And out of that has started this project, which is still really new in a lot of ways and very small, but, you know, our goal is to, you know, change the, the idea of who can be a blacksmith by, you know, representation, which is really important, like seeing people who don't fit the stereotype of the, you know, the big bearded, big bearded, burly guy, um, because blacksmithing, a lot of people think it's about strength and power, and that is part of it, but it's also, that's not the entirety of it. Um, it's been a very interesting journey. We have um, had a lot of support and have faced a lot of pushback. So um, it's been really interesting, but I think it's really important. Right now, our current project that we're working on, it's not quite ready to go online yet, but our goal is to develop a scholarship fund because we feel like the most direct way to help change the field is by getting people access to education. So providing scholarships to minority folks, whether that's, you know, what whatever that encompasses, um, 
because it's really important. And one of the things that, you know, coming back to that, what I was saying earlier is I feel like blacksmithing has been sort of relegated to the sidelines in a lot of ways. And I don't think it should be because it's a process. It's just as interesting as ceramics or painting or, you know, photography or whatever. But um, I think my perception is that there's a very narrow demographic of practitioners and that by widening the participant base will get broader, like a broader spectrum of ideas or ways of thinking about the material and new ways of working with it. And that that in and of itself will help to kind of expand what blacksmithing is in a way that I think is going to be really valuable. So, you know, we're all, everyone in the project, you know, works full time, if not more than has various obligations. So it's a real challenge for us to be able to move that forward, but um, but we're working on that and it's really exciting. And it's really helped us build a community, um, you know, and connect to other women Smiths, other other minority Smiths in a really great way. Yeah, thank you for that. I, 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 I picked up on your point that I think is very uh, relevant in, in many areas of where there can be a medium or an activity that's dominated um, you know, in a particular way. Uh, and I'm always excited by the openness impossible for like just really new radical, if, if, if it comes about, but just approaches or techniques or outcomes that, um, are going to kind of like add vitality to, you know, to, to the art or to the craft. Mm -hmm. uh, I see the, the work that you're doing there tied to, very much an opening towards creativity, and I think that's uh, inherently good. Uh, we're talking with Anne Bajold, and uh, she was just speaking about the Society for Inclusive um, uh, bl uh, Blacksmiths. And um, uh, Anne, I, I, I work with uh, teachers uh, for, for the last 20 years. I'm a labor union rep, uh, represent uh, teachers and support staff in the K-12 schools. Um, uh, I've, I've worked as a professor at the University of Rhode Island and teachers in general have had like an enormous impact on my development and my intellectual development. Um, when I talk to artists, I become really interested when they're practicing artists, but they're also teaching um, the art that, that they're doing. I was wondering if you could um, take a little bit of time to talk about uh, your experience in teaching um, uh, art and, and, and blacksmithing and basically just, you know, how that's impacted you as uh, the artist. Yeah. Well, I think my interest in teaching came a little bit later and, you know, it's driven by several different things, of course. One is that my department head from Oregon College of Art and Craft, Christine Clark, um, was an amazing educator. She's a fantastic artist. Um, but the way that she taught uh, is really inspiring. Um, it made me want to, to be like her, it does, you know, because just the way that she both pushed and supported people um, was really admirable. And then, you know, there's sort of a consideration about the economics of being an artist. And a lot of artists I've seen who seem to be able to be successful, part of it has to do with diversifying the means of, you know, your means of supporting yourself. So having a combination of teaching and art making and maybe some production work and, 
you know, being able to mix up what you're doing to keep yourself afloat um, seems like a really good idea. And again, you know, I come from a craft tradition, so our craft perspective, at least, and being able to, you know, I didn't buy any textbooks, really, when I went to OCAC. Everything I learned, I learned through direct demonstration and people showing me, and I feel a, a bit of an obligation to continue to share these processes and techniques um, with other folks so that, you know, in this craft, you know, this very hands-on way of making um, it's not theoretical, it's very direct. And I feel a responsibility to, to share the information that I've learned and my experience with other people. The, um, one of the, one, one of the things that I, I had a note, um, uh, about was, uh, something that I almost forgot as far as, um, a connection on the podcast, uh, with, uh, Christopher St. John, who was a previous guest, um, uh, in, in sculptor and watercolor and, and artist and uh, uh, recalling now that you um, you you're going to be in a joint exhibit or you had one or it's going to be coming up soon. No, too? it's coming up. It's in uh, going to be in May at the Dallas Art Center in the Dallas, Oregon, um, and there are several other artists involved as well. And so Christopher and I were connected by the executive director of the Dallas Art Scan Center, Scott Stevenson. And uh, I think the other artists, you know, so we all work with animal themes, and so that's our connection. So yeah, that's that's going to be coming up in in May of this year. Mm -hmm. uh, that that's wonderful. I very much uh, look look forward uh, to that. Um, I, and I know we we talked a bit uh, before, and I, I mentioned there's some 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 big questions too. And uh, you know, knowing you for the time that I have, I I know you're. Uh, can willingly handle them. Uh, one of the bigger questions I have is, uh, what is art? Yeah, well, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, I think art is any, you know, expression of human creativity. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know that it's any more or less than that. And that can be any kind of action or, you know, aesthetic experience or way of looking at the world, I think. Um, you know, I think at this point in contemporary art, art is a very fluid concept. I went through this with my uh, introduction to art students in the fall. And, you know, they want to start with, like, it's a, it's a sculpture of a person. And, like, when we go through, like, what is art now? There's all, you know, so many different ways that people are finding to express themselves through new technologies and performance and all kinds of radical ways of thinking about things. So, um, yeah, I think that's my short answer, you know, just the, the expression of the human experience. One, one of the things I, I've, I've wondered, and I, I haven't, uh, haven't had the opportunity to ask you yet, is... Um, what what is the accessibility to blacksmithing? Um, in 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 part of me for a, a rough analogy, one of the ways that you know I grew up in the city, and uh, you know for me access to sports it was you know was a question, and I think is a big economic issue, right? So mm -hmm. like you know I played basketball, and if there wasn't a basketball hoop around, you only need one basketball. Somebody needs to have a basketball, and if there wasn't a basketball hoop, you shot it at the 
you know, you shot it at the street sign, whatever you did. Um, you know, baseball could be more resource intensive. You need other people. Um, hockey was prohibitive, uh, prohibited, prohibitive, you know, economically for many folks. Wasn't part of the culture where I grew up. What's uh, within within blacksmithing? Um, you, you, you're going to need some some resources and some access to the what you need, uh, the the equipment. What is that world uh, like as far as access and, and contact with that? And how, how does somebody who's interested in blacksmithing navigate that? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely much more difficult than a lot of forms of art, right? Um, and that's part of why when I went to graduate school, one of my interests was developing ways to work in other materials or um, with other processes that didn't require that kind of space or that kind of equipment necessarily, which has helped to lead me in some interesting directions. Um, I think it's part of why blacksmiths have a lot of community because, you know, to really set up a whole shop on your own is pretty challenging, but there's a lot of ways to share resources that are really fantastic. You know, clearly like that's, it's not a, you know, it's not a cheap hobby. It's not a cheap interest uh, to get into. So there's, Regional groups that are really great. The Pacific Northwest has the Northwest Blacksmith Association, which is like the most fantastic group of people. They're really just awesome. And they have a space up at the Cowlitz County Fairgrounds up in um, Longview. And so they have a, a building that they rent long term and they have monthly events in the mentoring center, which is equipped with anvils and power hammer and there'll be demonstrations they have open forge time in the afternoon so members can come you pay i think like 10 bucks you get to watch a demonstration and then you can hang out and work and there's people around who have all kinds of experience so you can ask questions you know we do a lot of sharing you know people sell each other tools and you know as a community i think blacksmiths are incredibly generous it's part of the reason i care so much about what happens with it is like you have to have um there, there's like, you have to be a particularly driven kind of stubborn person, I think, <laughs> uh, just like the nature of the material, the nature of the work, you know, and again, like, what I do isn't exclusively blacksmithing, I incorporate some blacksmithing processes into what I do, and I work in a lot of different ways, but um, I definitely feel like I'm part of that community and it's really unique and wonderful community. It tends, there's a lot of really incredibly smart people, um, who work very hard and it's a really fantastic thing to be a part of. And I feel really fortunate. I was wondering if you could tell, um, the listeners, uh, about, um, about what you create as, as art pieces, um, you know, I'll be displaying some images around promotion of this episode and have have done so. Um, and you mentioned the primacy or that there was a connection with the Christopher St. John that the the in the other artists out in the in the Dows regarding animals. Um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, the subjects that you, you the pieces that you create, what what they look like, what they represent, what you what you're doing with that? Mm hmm. So at this at this point, you know, so I've been doing this for about 16 years now. So I'll just kind of speak to where I am. Um, you know, I'm really interested in animal imagery for reasons that 
I don't necessarily fully understand, despite having, you know, gone to graduate school and thought thinking about it quite extensively. <laughs> you know, one of the things that came up in my research that I think is really fascinating is that when you go back to the beginning of visual culture, you go back to cave painting and the, with some of the earliest forms of art making, and it's humans representing animal forms. And so I feel like there's a connection to something that's just maybe innate in us with a desire to, I don't, to, I, what, what compels us? I mean, there's so much art about animals. Um, what compels us to want to represent animals in all these different ways through sculpture, through painting? Um, I, I feel like it may have to do with a desire to connect to animals in a way that we're not actually capable of doing. Um, because there is a separation between us and them. So um, in the last couple of years, I got specifically very interested in, I'm interested in boundaries. Like that, I would say that's the foundation of my interest and in like the dissection of dichotomies. So the human and the animal, um, you know, it was in graduate school again that I came across Derrida's idea about you know, why do we call all animals animal? You know, uh, an alligator couldn't be more different from a zebra. Why are they all animals? They are all in the same category that is, you know, and we're separate from them. But look how diverse this category of creatures is. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, right? Right. Um, and comes back to some ideas that I have about, you know, we're, I mean, I we look I'm terrified about what's going on right now, especially environmentally. Um, I see us careening towards an inevitable disaster if we're not already past the point of being able to reconcile that as we are. And I think that especially in Western culture and American culture, we just we don't see ourselves as part of a larger system and we see ourselves as distinct from you know, our neighbors to the south, we see ourselves as distinct from, uh, like, somehow separate from the natural s systems in which we're, um, you know, that we live in, it doesn't make any sense to me. So um, I got really interested in ideas about animals that are kind of crossing those boundaries. Um, and I did a lot of research about coyotes, because they're really good at that. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah right. So they, you know, Coyotes were initially sort of their original habitat was the American West, and it was European settlers coming in and eradicating the wolf populations that allowed the coyotes to thrive and spread. You know, and they're incredibly adaptable, and so they live in everywhere from rural environments. I hear them, you know, outside my cabin at night sometimes here in rural Tennessee. But there's also coyotes in Manhattan. Um, so to me, they're like these incredible agents of um, being able to sort of pierce those divisions between the urban and the rural, you know, and ideas of like separating nature and culture. Um, I think that they're a really interesting animal to look at. And so starting to break down. So I was looking at raccoons and coyotes and, you know, I've gotten into crows lately, sort of birds. Um, yeah, animals that are navigating these spaces in between. There was a phrase I came across in an essay called um, Edgelands, which I uh, took the title of my thesis exhibition from by a woman, a British woman named Marianne Showed. Uh, she talks a lot about interstitial spaces. So 
you know, I think a lot of artists are interested in those ideas, like the liminal space, the space between. Um, there's a Portland novelist, writer named Lydia Yuknovich, who talks a lot about. I the, love her. Oh, she's the best, right? I, I love her. Yeah. And it was, you know, her TED talk about, um, you know, oh, help me out here. Um, I haven't seen the TED talk. I oh. invited her to podcast. Lydia, if you're out there, people are calling for you. <laughs> um, yeah. So she's, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm totally blanking for a second, but you know, uh, she's talking about misfits. There we go. And so, you know, and you know, it's these questions about inside, outside, and, you know, the edges inform the center, mainstream culture pulls from the underground, but then like what's in between the edges. And like, that's an idea that's really fascinating to me. Like, like what's, what's in between the in-between. And I think that animals have become a really great vehicle for exploring that question. Yeah. I, I, I could not connect to what you're saying, uh, more in, even in, in your explanation of it, uh, you know, it has me thinking, um, and I, and I like how you've laid out just like that, that kind of border idea. You know, I, I've studied the, I think when I've looked at boundaries and blurring, um, and there's a lot of it and it's a very fertile ground to investigate. Um, when I first looked at, it, I think it was like geographical borders, right? Is this Mexico? Is this Texas? How do you know where you are? Do you feel uncomfortable that you don't feel properly situated and know what's expected of you? And I find that area uh, fascinating. And it sounds to me with uh, the the way you describe uh, animals and particularly those, you know, what is wild maybe, right? With the coyote <laughs> in, uh, you know, in an urban setting is like, is this wild or is this controlled by humans in urban? <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. probably, probably not either, particularly um, in, in, in Manhattan. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's very, um, very, uh, fertile ground. I've been a vegan for more than half my life. So last year was kind of interesting. I looked up one day at the calendar and I've been, I'm 47, been vegan for 25 years. And I was like, wow, more than half my life I've, I've been a uh, vegan, but that's only one relationship, one very particular way of relating to animals by me not eating them. Mm -hmm. There's a whole a host of components as far as like, you know, I, I do question myself as far as, you know, you know, how do I include animals? Am I sensitive to them out in the wild? And there's so much to explore in your um, reference to Derrida. And of, of course, you know, this kind of large reference of animals, right? They're in this animal category. And of course, we're animals. So where does that leave you, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so... I appreciate um, you laying out that. Uh, so, so would you say? I mean, as far as what you know, right now with the the pieces that you're creating, uh, you're exploring uh, maybe this boundary and the presentation of animals uh, with this in mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you know, there's a lot of it ends up sort of layering, you know. So there's an interest in the ideas of the dichotomy of gender which of course we understand gender is not dichotomous, it's a spectrum. Um, and so for me, that plays out in my material use where I'm both using this, you know, very hard industrial material that is typically seen as the purview of men, you know, using steel and then trying to bring in 
these other, you know, softer materials, fiber materials. I'm also very interested in, you know, I kind of laid out the idea that blacksmithing, you know, is historically a male pursuit. And that how does that counter with the history of fiber arts, which is historically, although not exclusively, uh, but at least currently seen as a female pursuit, even though that's not necessarily true. Um, but there's a lot of things like that, right? <laughs> um, there's like cultures where, you know, weaving is maybe the purview of men, whatever. But um, so I'm interested in how, if I kind of come in the layering and combination of these things, can I start to understand it differently? Or is there, you know, what comes out of that exploration? So there's sort of a material base, you know, there's a fundamental interest in metalsmithing, metals processes, like there's my own technical interest, but wanting to combine these materials, looking at, you know, animals, animal in imagery, philosophy around that, you know, the idea of the Anthropocene, you know, that we're living in this moment, geological time, where now us as a collective species are influencing geology in a way that's never happened before with the, you know, the like accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere, all the other accumulation of plastics in the ocean, all these different ways that we're changing the world that we live in at a very rapid rate. Um, so bringing in these different kinds of materials to try to think about those ideas. I have some compulsion of continually like having these animals that are sort of coming out of the wall or sort of messing with the boundary of the gallery space. I don't even know where, you know, I mean, it seems pretty direct, but I don't know exactly where that comes from. Um, yeah. I, saw the, uh, I, I saw that and it was a striking image, I think, in, in, in uh, it might have been on your site, um, where the animal's coming out of the wall. Mm-hmm. And um, it, 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 it has this huge uh, impact and it, it, it's beautiful and that's so much energy just by the presentation of what, of what you're doing there. Um, is, that, is that something you've been, as far as display and creation, is that something you've been uh, doing more lately? Yeah, right now I've been working on a series that started um, with a show I did that was at Afro Gallery in Portland in August of last year, and I'm continuing to work with these with birds right now, um, and that's kind of my focus, working towards the next show. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just seem to, I I keep coming back to it, and you know, I mean, it makes a lot of sense really with the ideas that I'm thinking about, although. I don't know why that keeps coming up exactly the way that it does. Yeah, it, it might reveal itself uh, eventually. I, um, uh, as as you know, um, there's a, a a question behind the show of something rather than nothing about, um, and I've talked a couple times about uh, why I ask it. I think it's related to creativity or like the ultimate nature of, you know, uh, why we're doing things. I've been exploring the question uh, with artists and thinkers um, uh, and also like for myself exploring it through um, science and uh, cosmology and philosophy and of course back to art with with this um, project um, uh, and I know in talking to you you have the answer uh, to the question why there is something rather than nothing I'm relying on you so why is there something rather than nothing I have an answer. <laughs> All right. And the answer is fine. Right. There's no, I don't think there is. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I like the idea that, um, 
as humans, as conscious beings, like we're uh, an opportunity for the universe to experience itself. Um, I think that that's a really interesting idea. You know, why are we sentient? Why do we exist the way that we do? You know, I don't, I clearly am not the one with the answer to that question, but there's something rather than nothing. I, that's a really interesting idea to me. And it's, it's part of actually to come back to why I teach, why I think teaching is so important because I think it's so valuable to help, to help people learn how to manifest their ideas in physical space and to see that they can have that kind of influence on their reality. And I connect that back to the idea of social change. And that if you see that you're able to take raw material and transform it into an expression of an idea that previously only existed in your head, um, that gives you the opportunity to understand that you can influence reality in other ways. And to me, that connects back to can we influence the world in which we live and how can we do that? And, you know, clearly we live in a consumer culture and we're very much taught that culture is something that we consume. Um, but that's never been the case. Historically, culture is the product of human expression, right? What, like that's what we were talking about earlier. What is art? So um, connecting people back to the idea that we can participate in our reality and we don't have to just accept what's given to us, I think is really, really important. Um, so the, the something that we make out of the nothing, uh, you know, some, I don't know, just the production of the raw material in and of itself is something, but then taking that and making objects that express ideas to me is very important. Yeah, I want to I want to thank you uh, deeply for that answer. It's always uh, uh, an, an act of courage, and um, as 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 usual, and particularly with a lot of um, our conversation, I've I've learned a lot, um, you know, through through your answers. Um, and I think I think the what what I enjoy a lot about it is that it opens up other questions. Um, I've been influenced by uh, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who said, "My job as a philosopher is not to answer any question whatsoever; is just to ask more questions." And I like that dynamic, right, where you can try to answer questions and you do give answers, but they open up more questions um, uh, for exploration. Um, We've been talking with Anne Bujold, and uh, Anne, as part of what um, you know, part of what the podcast does, I'm very much a proponent of um, not only people connecting with you know this protect particular episode and your answers and perspective, and your, but I want people to participate and, and connect in whatever way you can lay out for them in 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 your art, in um, whether it's displays or art or forms where you put that out and including the society for um of uh inclusive uh blacksmiths um can you lay out for the listeners kind of ways to contact your work see your work uh, interact with you in a way that's comfortable with you or um some details uh around the uh exhibition here in oregon that's upcoming regarding animals sure i mean I'll mention this, although this is um, only going to be timely for a little while, but, you know, one of the things that I'm really excited about that's coming up is I'm going to be a participant in the Austin Forging Competition, which is held annually in Austin, Texas. It's put on by the Austin Metal Authority, 
and in conjunction with Community First Village, which is a, a project, it's a tiny home community east, just a little bit outside of Austin. And it's a, pro, you know, it's a project to help transitioning homeless folks. They have a really amazing facility. I, I visited down there in November and that's coming up March 7th. So what they do is they bring eight teams of blacksmiths to compete. It's a four hour timed competition. There's a, you know, a bunch of rules and stipulations. There's no power tools. Everything's gotta be done by hand. Um, so it's a really cool thing that they do to help bring um, attention to the community there and the project that they're doing. So they have a blacksmith shop on site as well as a woodworking shop and a screen printing shop. So they're finding you know ways for people in that community to connect with making um, in ways to both you know for economic reasons to you know have people have sources of income um, as well as outlets for creativity. So that's a really amazing project that those guys have been doing, and it's a really exciting event. And that's going to be March seventh in Austin, Texas. Um, that's going to be super cool. And then, you know, I teach, I have a three-day blacksmithing workshop coming up at the Appalachian Center for Craft in May, and I update my teaching on my website, which is uh, my name, ambujold.com. Um, so I, I'm out and about teaching where I have the opportunity to do so. Uh, we're going to have that exhibition at the Dallas Art Center in May of this year, and I'm also going to be part of a group show it's going to be at the Columbia River Center for the Arts in Hood River, uh, Oregon, in November. And that's what I have. That's all I have lined up coming up for now. Mm -hmm. And I'm on Instagram, you know, Facebook, all those things. And the Society of Inclusive Blacksmiths, you can find the website is inclusiveblacksmiths.com. And that scholarship project we're working on and hopefully we'll be launching in a significant way in the next few months. Oh, thank you so much uh, for all that. Um, I can say that it's been, oh, you can hear the train in the background. That's one of the things, we've had two trains go by near the train tracks, which um, uh, is, a, it's a sound that's very uh, centering for me. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but uh, I just want to thank you for your time, and it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to get uh, to know you and to gosh just to learn about your thinking behind your art and experiencing um the art that you do uh it, itself um again uh i've learned so much and i'm actually going to pick up on some of the points and listening to this again and kind of explore uh, a lot of the things that that you said but um i just want to deeply thank you for your time and for your your advocacy work and in, in, in efforts and um the art that you, you give us um it's much appreciated oh thank you for having me it's been an absolute pleasure thanks ann and have a great day all right you are listening to something rather than nothing 